Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. This week, 21 people were arrested in a single day at a single store, all for shoplifting. But now, more than three months later, no one is serving time. We'll look at why. Europe is on the brink of a major political realignment as several traditionally neutral countries seek to join NATO. Some big-name Trump Republicans called to testify in front of the January 6th committee. And one million Americans dead. The U.S. passes a grim milestone in the COVID-19 pandemic. All of that coming up. But first, here's Greg Hersholt and Manda Factor. The Senate Majority Leader says the contentious debate over abortion rights is not going away. New York Democrat Chuck Schumer again condemned Republicans for voting to oppose a bill locking in federal abortion rights. As Americans vote later this year, they will choose between radical MAGA Republicans who want to get rid of Roe or pro-choice Democrats who will protect a woman's right to make her own decision. But Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell says the big issue is the protests going outside the homes of some Supreme Court justices. All Americans should agree that judges and juries ought not to be subjected to threats or intimidation campaigns. ABC News political director Rick Klein is with us on our Northwest Newsline. Has this become the number one issue leading into the midterms, Rick? Well, I think for the moment, I think inflation and uh, the cost of everything in life is probably going to be a bigger one uh, in the longer term. But uh, this is certainly Royal Washington over the last week and a half, the unprecedented leak, the confirmation from the court that it's legitimate. And uh, now we're waiting to see final word from the court. If Roe v. Wade is overturned, it is definitely going to explode across politics in unpredictable ways. But I think maybe I mean, the number one issue is uh, is a fraught task right now because there's so much going on in American's lives. If Roe v. Wade is indeed overturned, which political party benefits the most from that, do you think? Yeah, I think at the margins, it's the Democrats because they lost. And frankly, losing puts you in a better position to, to organize around something than winning. Uh, it's, it's kind of an odd result of politics, but uh, often um, aggrievement uh, plays better. Uh, but it will be different in different places. I think uh, abortion politics is going to play out at the state level, at the local level, in unpredictable ways. There's going to be places where it, uh, no doubt, gets uh, Democrats uh, enthusiastic. There'll be places where Republicans are as well. I think it was notable in the votes in the Senate this week. Uh, yeah, Democrats put everyone on record, but most Republicans were happy to do that. They were happy to, to say, yes, I am proudly pro-life, and I'm Glad to take a vote that, uh, that displays that. Rick, what do we learn from uh, last Tuesday's primary results? Well, this past week was interesting. Two red states, West Virginia and Nebraska. Not meaningful at the, at the national level, but West Virginia, you had two Republicans running against each other, incumbent House members both. Uh, one had Trump's endorsement, one didn't. Trump's guy won, uh, which means a win for the big lie. It means a, a win for the brand of politics that Trump has, has brought. Uh, the other side uh, of, of that equation happened in Nebraska, where another red state uh, in Nebraska, you had President Trump's pick uh, actually fall short. A lot of issues around him involving allegations of groping by women. Trump brushed all that aside, as he's wont to do in, in many cases, and, and saw it as a political witch hunt. Uh, voters didn't agree. And voters ultimately went with the another choice who was more closely tied to the state Republican establishment. So something of a split decision for MAGA. Uh, and it gets more interesting from here because you've got races coming up next week in battlegrounds like North Carolina and Pennsylvania that will actually be more meaningful uh, when, when you talk about competitive races in the fall. All right, Rick, thanks for helping us keep an eye on it. ABC News political director Rick Klein.
That's Greg Hersholt and Manda Factor. Inflation or abortion? Which issue will turn out the most voters in the midterms? Republican candidates are betting inflation is the best campaign issue to drive up their numbers at the polls. Now, Mike DeBonis is covering it for the Washington Post and spoke with Bill O'Neill. Mike, you break the Republican strategy down into three Ds, downplay, divert, and dodge. How do candidates and their party implement that on something as divisive as abortion? It's pretty simple. It's basically say, you know, this really isn't an issue in this race in the state, uh, and it's going to be on a state-by-state basis. Um, and use that to pivot to the issues you want to talk about, which if you're a Republican is going to be inflation, it's going to be uh, immigration issues, border issues, and, and public safety. Um, you know, you're already seeing the playbook in places like Nevada and New Hampshire, uh, where there's some, some of the hardest spots in our races are happening. Um, both of those states have laws on the books that deal with abortion, and the Republican candidates there are saying that it, you know basically the issue has been settled, and they have no plans to revisit it. Uh, Democrats, of course, say that you know that there's no guarantee of that, and uh, uh, in a lot of cases they are uh, uh, highlighting the the proven sort of uh, anti-abortion rights records of some of these candidates and saying that they represent a threat. Uh, but, uh, you know, these reformers are saying, like, you know, or this simply is not going to be an issue. Let's talk about the issues that matter. That's, of course, completely opposite of the Democratic strategy. How are they trying to make the potential reversal of Roe v. Wade the centerpiece of midterms? Well, they're really trying to put this at the centerpiece uh, of their midterm message now. Um, I think that, you know, they recognize that, you know, two to one Americans want to want Roe to stay in place. And if, if Roe does, in fact get overturned later this year by the Supreme Court, as that leaked opinion indicated, um, it very well could prompt a, a public backlash. But the, what's in question is, is whether that backlash is going to outweigh some of the other, you know, really uh, overwhelming trends in public opinion we've seen against Democrats on things like the economy and public safety. Now, what does the polling specifically indicate about inflation outweighing abortion at this point, or vice versa, for that matter? If you ask strategists of either party about their research, if you look at public polling and about what issues are top of mind for voters, uh, the economy is by far number one. Um, crime and uh, border security are, are kind of uh, in, in contention for that number two, number three spot. Abortion, at least before the week last week, was well, well, well down the list. But I think that there's there's there is an expectation, a mutual expectation among Republicans and Democrats that that's going to rise. But I think Republicans are specifically betting it's not going to rise to that top three slot. That it it, it it's still going to be pretty far down the list for most voters. That's Mike DeBonis. You can read much more on this online. Go to WashingtonPost.com. That's Bill O'Neill. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, recidivism, recidivism, recidivism. Why the work of Seattle police, at least on one day, was all for naught when it comes to crime in downtown. When the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. At the risk of sounding like a broken record, repeat offenders continue to be a problem in the city of Seattle. Recently, 21 people were arrested in a single day at a single store for shoplifting. Not one of them is serving time. This seems to be a microcosm of the rising crime rates not only in downtown, 
but throughout Seattle and western Washington. We figured we'd get an update from Matt Markovich from Fox 13 News here in Seattle. He's their political reporter, and he's been covering this since long before he was at Fox 13 News, even back when he was at Como Television. But now we know he's paid far too much because he joins us from the beach in Southern California. Uh, But uh, what's the latest here? 21 people arrested, no one serving time? We've been talking at nauseum about accountability and the so-called broken criminal justice system that's in the city of Seattle. Uh, We've talked about habitual offenders. Mayor Bruce Harrell launched what he called Operation New Day, which was a cooperative agreement between Seattle police, the city prosecutor, the King County prosecutor, even the U.S. attorney, kind of crack down and have a coordinated effort on crime. And one of those crimes that we always talk about is shoplifting. So on February 11th, one of the very first emphasis patrols for Operation New Day was a shoplifting sting at the downtown Target on 2nd Avenue in Seattle. And on that day, SPD told me uh, they arrested 21 people and they actually booked 18 in the jail. Maybe you think, well, what happened to those people? Here it is in May. That happened February 11th. So I asked them, send me everyone you had for that day. Remember, there was 21 arrests, 18 bookings. The uh, SPD sent me nine cases nine individuals. So we took that, those nine individuals, and the city attorney's made a pledge that she will make a charging decision within five days. That's her goal. We wanted to find out if that really happened on, for all those cases on February 11th. Going back into the court records, we found that she did make a charging decision, did charge everybody, but the range was from the very next day to 61 days later. So she didn't quite hit her five-day mark, but at least she charged everybody. So what happened to everybody? Well, to summarize a lot of this, we had people that were arrested that were, had 41 gross misdemeanor convictions. One, person, one woman had. She had three felonies convictions. She had retail theft conviction. Other people had multiple convictions. So these so are habitual criminals. Go. These are repeat offenders. Yeah. Well, yes, they're clearly repeat offenders. And one woman, that first woman I talked to you about, she is actually on this list of 118 habitual offenders that the city attorney has targeted as what they call high utilizers of the court system. So of all the people to summarize what happened on this one day, after all the investigation that we did, 21 arrests, 18 people booked in a jail, nine cases that were referred to the city attorney's office, they no one's had their court date, and only one person is in jail because she committed two other offenses after she allegedly shoplifted on that from that target. So one person in jail, four people have failed to appear for their court dates. There is a warrant out for their arrest. And so the bottom line is nobody has been held accountable. So 21 people arrested for shoplifting in one day at one store. None of them were sent to jail. I mean, they were arrested and booked and released, as you had said. So who is to blame for this recidivism? Is it the city? Is it the city attorney? Is it Seattle police? Because this is not an original story. We've heard this over and over and over again. Well, I think that the accountability aspect is, is what we were trying to show is where the accountability might be lapsing. Well, you know, SBD did its part. 21 arrests, although if only nine cases of those 21 were sent by SPD to the city attorney, there's got to be some questions about that. Well, because I don't have any other names. We could not come up with the names of all the people that are booked for shoplifting on that one day at the jail. So if only nine cases made to the city attorney, the city attorney, accountability there, she did charge everybody with theft. But a lot of those people 
had multiple other crimes. They had other warrants out for their arrests, and four of the nine did not show up in court. They promised they, they when they when they get they call PR personal recognizance. You make a promise to the judge that okay, I'm not going to post any bail, but I promise you, judge, I'm going to show up for my court dates. Well, all but one was uh, PR, and the other the one posted bail. So they made that promise to the judge, and four of the nine have failed to keep their promises and have skipped multiple court dates. So the bench warrant goes out for their arrest, and then it recycles again. You bring them in, you put them in the jail. They don't book anybody in jail for for warrants now, especially ones that are just property crimes like shoplifting. So that cycle is happening a lot at the court side of things, where the judges are involved. And they're just allowing people to go back out in the street and they're recommitting crimes. So I think when you ask that big, broad question, who's to blame? I think right now in our own little investigation, it shows, okay, what can we do at the court system to hold people more accountable just for showing up at court? Well, it's it's kind of hard to paint everyone with a broad brush because each case is an individual. Each individual has his own personal history and own criminal record if they have one. So the judges can't simply say, all of you, you're staying in jail or all of you, you're being released. Everything is decided on an individual basis. But that being said, this does seem to be a bit of a pattern with Seattle Municipal Court. It does. And again, like you said, you don't want each person is different. But clearly, when someone comes in and they've skipped multiple dates and they're brought before a judge, knowing the judge has said they broke their promise to the judge that they'll make their court dates, they continue to get PR'd or they continue to get released. And is it an issue with the court or is it an issue that, you know, they don't want to keep people like this in jail because one, it's costly. And Dow Constantine has said he wants to basically eliminate the downtown jail. So there's no accountability for people who continue to commit crimes as they're waiting for their cases to be heard in court. So you talk about closing the downtown jail. Obviously, this idea of ending incarceration has been something that's been a push from the liberal left for some time. But we've seen flashes of it with COVID because you had the jail uh, release a lot of inmates during the pandemic because, to be quite honest, the jail is a bit of a petri dish and, and you can have a number of outbreaks easily. Is But we're kind of emerging from the pandemic. Are they still using that as a, a reason for putting people back on the street? Yes. And they're, they're keeping that jail population, at least the downtown one, at no more than 1,300. You know, they used to hold 1,800, 1,900 uh, people. Now it's 1300 and they're even trying to push that down even lower. And again, you have a medical reason there, but now it's also a cost factor. It's It costs a lot of money to hold somebody in jail and that's the taxpayers are paying for that. And if they're repeat offenders, you know, I, 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 I'm hesitating because I don't have an answer for this right now. Well, I don't think anyone really has an answer to this. This is something that the city has been struggling with for years. That's correct. And and at least they're, they're making some headway. And that's what we're going to be doing. We're just going to be following cases like this to find out, you know, it's one to announce 21 arrests. We wanted to find out who is, in this particular case, actually had some justice done. And at a good at least three months plus, after they were arrested, no justice has been done. Nobody's found guilty or had their case dismissed. 
or are found now not guilty. There's just hasn't been any justice in any of the cases. We have to take another quick break, but when we come back, a realignment of NATO. More European countries want to join the alliance following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Plus, some big-name Republicans are subpoenaed by the House Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Finland's leaders have come out in favor of joining NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Sweden could soon do the same within days. This is a historic realignment on the continent with just two and a half months into Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Joining me now is ABC's Andy Field from Washington. DC. It's sort of bittersweet for me having to talk about uh, Finland. It's my family's ancestral homeland. And traditionally, they and, and much of the Scandinavian countries have been fairly neutral in the latter half of the 20th century. And you must have done something wrong if, if they're signing now with NATO instead of no one. Yeah, you really have to mess up to, to get Sweden off the dime and, and when it comes to neutrality here. They have avoided military alliances for more than two hundred years and then finland of course your homeland uh adopted neutrality after the defeat of by the soviets in world war ii uh the public opinion in both nations shifted dramatically after this invasion by russia of ukraine uh they're scrambling in fact almost any other country surrounding there is saying gee we'd like to have the nato umbrella over our head because uh Russia didn't invade NATO countries. They only invaded Ukraine after Ukraine kind of danced around it, but never actually joined NATO. So this is a a huge slap in the face to Vladimir Putin. The Kremlin reacted by warning that it will take retaliatory military technical steps, whatever that means. If indeed uh, Finland and then perhaps later Sweden joins NATO. Are we talking about rebuilding the Warsaw Pact? Is that what Putin wants to do? I mean, retaliatory technical steps? Oh, your guess is as good as mine is what Putin wants to do here. Look, this has been a disaster for Putin since the very first day of the invasion. Uh, His prediction was he would waltz in, take Kiev, take uh, the rest of the Donbass region build a land bridge to the sea and uh, and be done with it in a matter of days. We're now going into month three of this war. The, the Russians have lost tens of thousands. They, they've lost their flagship Navy vessel. And Finland and Sweden see the writing on the wall because if indeed they join the North uh, Atlantic Treaty Organization, then uh, Russia is literally surrounded on all sides by NATO countries. And that's not something that Vladimir Putin wanted. In fact, this is the whole reason he said he went to war to prevent this. If you look at the moves as, as, a, as a chess game, you, you, Finland and Sweden joining NATO, Ukraine also looking at joining NATO, I, I guess they're probably a little bit more apt now that Russia has invaded their country. What happens then? Because then if Russia continues its aggression, the U.S. is obliged by the treaties to defend these countries. Well, it, the U.S. is obliged by treaty to defend all the NATO countries, not just these two. So um, it's the likelihood of Russia invading those countries before it gets to the other former satellite countries of the Soviet Union are pretty slim. Uh, Plus, they don't seem to have the firepower or the manpower to do it anymore. They're barely holding on against a much smaller army uh, in Ukraine in some of these regions here. And the only successes they've had are by lobbing missiles and bombs at uh, civilian buildings and leveling those. So why is it that this invasion has failed so miserably, at least by all outward appearances? Well, part of it is NATO and the U.S. sharing intelligence with the Ukrainian forces so that they know or they're at least two or three steps ahead of what Russia's doing uh, with our satellite surveillance and and other 
nations helping out as well. So there's not a whole lot that Russia can do that that Ukraine doesn't know about a couple of steps ahead of time and is able to counterattack. The other part is that the U.S. and NATO countries have supplied literally billions of weapons in training, ammunition, just to pummel the forces that are attacking them uh, and being able to hold them back, something that even some commanders in the United States are surprised they've done as well as they have, but never underestimate the will of people who are fighting for their survival. So looking at this from a global perspective, the invasion of Ukraine could ultimately realign the map as far as treaty organizations, who's aligned with whom. You got more people joining NATO. Russia may get pushed back to Moscow. I mean, this is a big change. Well, certainly none of this bodes well for Russia nor Vladimir Putin, and certainly is counter to everything he has tried to accomplish here. At best, he may get the Donbass in the eastern part of Ukraine uh, in his own hands there if uh, the Ukrainian forces can't hold them off. But at this point, we're told that they've pretty much fought them to a draw, that there isn't a great advance or or any more progress than they had in the nine years that they were fighting this war in the first place. All right, we're talking with ABC's Andy Field. And the other topic that we wanted to talk to you about, and this came out late in the week, looks like Kevin McCarthy and other Republican leaders have been subpoenaed by the committee investigating the January 6th insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. This is a big step because it's not often that a House committee subpoenas House members. And not only not often, never. It doesn't happen. The only time that we've been able to figure out it has happened or it was even considered was in ethics committee investigations where that particular person was ordered or commanded to show up before the committee or face expulsion from uh, the either the House or the Senate. And that's the whole, po- uh, whole position, whole reason for having an ethics committee. Exactly. And this is not an ethics committee, although others would argue otherwise. Kevin McCarthy, Scott Perry, Jim Jordan, Andy Biggs, and Mo Brooks have all basically thumbed their nose at the committee for a voluntary testimony. Kevin McCarthy really wouldn't comment about the subpoena, saying he hasn't even seen it yet. And he says this is a fake investigation, uh, you know, the usual witch hunt comments. But he didn't say whether he would show up. Uh, Mo Brooks said he won't show up. I think Andy Biggs as well. We don't know about Jim Jordan. Uh, Now, Jim Jordan... uh, is one of these guys who seems to have developed an incredibly foggy memory about what happened that day. Uh, he's been asked several times, did you talk to the president that day? He goes, I think so. I talked to him a lot of times. And then he was caught some other times as well. I might've talked to him in the morning. I might've talked to him in the afternoon. This is a guy who knows exactly when he talked to the president. He's just uh, dancing around the issue because he knows that he may face some liability for all this. What is the committee expecting to hear from these individuals? What are they expecting to learn? Well, I think they already know what they, they, they know. They want to get these guys under oath to either confirm or deny it because they have talked to hundreds of other witnesses who have said these people have said things, done things. We've already heard these recordings of Kevin McCarthy that have made been made public by a New York uh, Times investigation where you hear McCarthy just being horrified at what happened that day, criticizing former President Trump, criticizing for other members, fellow members of his own party, uh, saying that they're inciting some of this violence. And then, of course, Kevin McCarthy has publicly come out and said, no, 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 uh, none of that's true. Of course, the tapes showed that indeed it was true. And now he's trying to say, well, you know, we were just kind of uh, spitballing there. We weren't really saying we we're going to take any action. 
And what the committee wants to do is get them under oath to put that up against other people who have spoken under oath here. And that is exactly what these guys do not want to do. So Kevin McCarthy, in particular, you mentioned those tapes. He he seems to say one thing in private, but something completely different in public, at least when it comes to President Trump, with various the, the recordings or, or other reporting that we've heard from uh, inside sources. He seems very critical of Trump when Trump's not listening. Well, there are others who are doing quite the same thing because publicly they quake in fear of Donald Trump and his ability to rally his voters or his supporters who still are there when it comes to primaries and elections, fearing that they could be out of a job if they say anything bad publicly about Donald Trump. So with regards to this January 6th committee, are they about done wrapping up their investigation? Are we expecting a bombshell report to come out because... You know, if Republicans gain control of the House this November, they're going to shut that committee down. Well, and that's the problem with these subpoenas here, because if they fight this in court, that court fight could go well past the election into next year. And if indeed, as you mentioned, the Republicans take control of the House, it's all a moot point. The Republicans come in, they hit the gavel and they go, January 6th committee is no more. They throw everything out, the millions of dollars of work that was done. And the American people will never actually know what was done and, and how it how it all came down, which I think is why there's so much pressure on this committee to get some report out pretty quickly. There are going to be public hearings, we're told, in June. Some of them will be in prime time. Uh, and we'll have to see who's going to show up for these things. All right, Andy Field, ABC News correspondent from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jeff. Still to come. A grim milestone for the U.S. and the more than two-year fight against COVID-19 when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Here's Elisa Jaffe. The United States marking a grim milestone, one million COVID deaths. One million empty chairs around the family dinner table. Each irreplaceable, irreplaceable losses. Each leaving behind a family, a community forever changed because of this pandemic. President Biden at the global COVID-19 summit saying there must be a united effort to eradicate COVID. Joining us is ABC's Alex Stone. And that number, Alex, it's more than the number of American soldiers killed in World War II, about 400,000 more than the number killed in the bloody Civil War. And now health officials are warning that we're going to see another surge this fall. Yeah, we may very well. And there's some belief that we may be in one right now, but there. There's not a real good counting of numbers coming in. So many people testing at home right now. So many in states that that don't report numbers any longer or don't even collect them in some states now. So they don't even know. But we know the death numbers are now relatively stable at about 340 Americans who are still dying every day. This is a a hard number to, to comprehend, right? One million. That is the size of San Jose, California, the 10th largest city in the U.S. being completely wiped out, gone. And today, the White House declaring we've gotten to the number. Johns Hopkins says we're still a few days away from it, likely on Monday or Tuesday, um, but the number is going up. And I spent time with Dr. Oren Friedman, head of the ICU at Cedars-Sinai here in L.A. He's lived through it. He's seen it. He told me this. It's a staggering number. Uh, I think it's a number that most people have a hard time fathoming even what a million people would look like. Yeah, he's exhausted after two years on the front lines. Elisa, he got COVID right at the beginning, working in the ICU before there was any medicine for it, any vaccines, before we knew what it was. Uh, He says those were the worst uh, three weeks of his life. He's in his early 40s. 
he made it through, but he said it was not good. And then he got better. He went to New York to help out there. We didn't even know how to test for the virus. We certainly didn't know how to treat the virus. We certainly didn't know how infectious the virus was and how easy it was to transmit. Um, it was it, it, it was overwhelming, uh, I think, for any anyone in the healthcare field. However, we relied on each other. We relied on as much of the literature that was coming out. You Eddie, know. T- talk to me about the enormity of the, the death that he and his team saw, the families impacted, the people suffering to breathe. He says it was incredible that one of the worst things that he says, though, was walking out of the hospital, Elisa, and the non-believers, people who were telling him it wasn't really going on. It made our jobs even that much more difficult because it was it was sort of felt like you were fighting a war, but when you returned home from the battle, people just simply didn't believe that war was even occurring. Uh, and that was one of the hardest, I think, emotional and uh, just mental things for us all to get through as healthcare providers. And COVID, now we know the third leading cause of death in 2021 behind heart disease and cancer. The number of Americans who have died from COVID dwarfing those who have died from the flu and the numbers are still going up. He believes so, Elisa and other doctors we're talking to that even though we may see a bump in death numbers in the coming months, that between vaccines and uh, antiviral medication and other measures that we probably won't see the extreme numbers that we saw early on again, but uh, it's definitely not over yet. The The number is still going up. But does he, like the administration, believe as a lot of these deaths have been preventable or could have been prevented? But And how many people died after there were vaccines available? Yeah, and absolutely. He believes that they were preventable. And, and, and you know, he, he talked to me a lot about that, saying this was most of these deaths could have been prevented, that, that he truly believes in his uh, medical with his medical knowledge, being a pulmonologist, and uh, he has a million different titles, uh, working at both Cedars Hospitals and the ICUs in L.A. and in Marina Del Rey, that that he believes most would have been prevented. Um, And, yeah, again, most of those, even though we are learning there are more breakthrough deaths now, but most of those up until now have been in the unvaccinated. He said that everybody he is seeing now is unvaccinated coming into the, the ER I also talked to, to Morgan Roverud, a nurse at Cedars, and she says it does feel so much better now, though. Hopefully we don't go back to those times, but the emergency tent outside has come down. Uh, that, that it just, it's a totally different feeling now. Kind of like, even like the mask kind of, mask mandate lifting. It's kind of like, wow, like, okay, are we, we're coming into a time where we have enough vaccinated individuals in, you know, the United States. It's safe now to kind of go resume our normal life. Yeah, hopefully, although maybe now long term it won't be that way. There also, though, Elisa, the mental aspect on every American. Uh, Dr. Dave Choksi, uh, he used to run uh, the uh, New York's uh, mental health response, and he says it has affected many of us even now from when we were told we had to remain home. Just as much as a virus does or uh, heart disease does, um, loneliness and isolation are health issues 
uh, and they have an impact on how we feel and our well-being. And on the children who are still working to catch up on that time lost out of the classroom, Chrissy France teaches third grade in Indiana. I've noticed a big impact on my scholars as a result of the pandemic. Scholars who are learning from home, learning all these sounds and learning um, all these concepts, but with a mask over our faces. And just now, many large companies are beginning to do the return to office to employees learning to live again, going in every day, child care. So we're really only beginning to emerge right now, uh, kind of tentatively, hoping that, that we're not going to go back into anything. But uh, a million dead is a striking number, but there's a lot of impact even beyond that. Those who didn't have a loved one who died, but whether it be their mental health or going back to work, so many uh, aspects of it that only now are being felt. And the president ordering flags at half-mast and the White House pushing for more COVID funding, but that $10 billion aid package seems like it's still stalled on Capitol Hill. Yeah, at this point, we don't know where that money is going to go. And we've heard from the White House saying this is going to prevent free testing, um, free vaccines, all of these measures that we have become so accustomed to. And some Republicans are saying, well, good, it's not needed any longer. The, the extent of what Democrats uh, are trying to do, Democrats argue, no, we still need this, that, that we are not done yet. And we may know in the, the next couple of months that, that maybe now where we are, even if hospitalizations go up a little bit, that deaths won't go up. But we don't know the, the extent of that yet. And, and Democrats are saying too soon to say we don't need all of this. Republicans are saying that the money can be better used in, in other ways. And that fight continuing on now. ABC's Alex Stone. Thank you, Alex. You got it. Thanks, Elisa. Still to come, how Republicans are trying to tie immigration to the shortage of baby formula, with the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Finally this week, the shortage of baby formula continues, and now the issue has become a partisan political football. Here's Greg Hersholt in Manda Factor. Republicans are pointing the finger of blame at the federal government for sending baby formula to the Texas border to feed illegal immigrants at a time when store shelves are bare. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says the president will use every tool available to the government to alleviate the crisis. ABC News correspondent Sherry Preston is with us this morning. Sherry, why do we have a shortage of baby formula? That's a great question. And, you know, it's one that goes back to the very early days of the pandemic when everybody was hoarding toilet paper and everything else, a lot of parents stocked up on baby formula. So as they went through their stash of baby formula, they weren't buying it on store shelves. So, you know, as companies like Abbott Labs and, and Gerber look at their major manufacturers of baby formula, they look and they say, we don't need to step up production because really people haven't been buying it that much. It's because they were using the ones that they bought during the pandemic. So that's part of it. Another part of it is back in February, Abbott Labs, maker of Similac and two specialty baby infant formulas that are for little kids who can't handle uh, breast milk or regular formula because of lactose intolerance or other allergies. They, a bacteria was found in the plant that they run in Sturgis, Michigan, so they had to shut it down. That bacteria believed responsible for making four babies sick and two of them died. So they had to shut down the manufacturing there. In addition to that, you've got a lot of, as Jen Psaki said there, red tape, getting infant formula in from other countries, in from Canada, in from uh, the European Union, because there are a lot of restrictions that are put on it, a lot of regulations, even when it comes to labeling. And uh, people are questioning, 
can we ease up some of those, you know, labeling restrictions so we can get more infant formula in? Regardless of how we got here, what it's left is a lot of parents really, really frustrated by this. If it's not this, you know, the, 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 the pandemic, a lot of them have been you know, keeping their babies at home because they're afraid of this. They can't get the vaccine. There's worries about this hepatitis that has been going around that the CDC is worried about. And parents are saying, we are struggling and we're fed up. And you know when it gets to, you know, the steps of the Capitol with political conversations about who did it, that it's a big deal. Well, the shortage is now a national crisis. What's the advice for parents who can't find the formula their kids need? The advice for parents is call your pediatrician. Call your doctor. If you can't get a hold of your pediatrician and you, you, need, you need this formula, especially if your baby is one of those that cannot handle um, regular formula. What you should do is call your pediatrician. Maybe you're in a group at HMO where you, you have a bunch of doctors in that, in that HMO. You can't get a hold of your pediatrician. Try to get a hold of someone else because you'll have better luck. I mean, Abbott Labs has said that they will work on a case-by-case basis, uh, getting people help who do have maybe those babies that need the specialty formula. But I called that 800 number today, and you cannot go anywhere without talking to your doctor first. They put that number out there, and I, I thought it was for parents, so I was calling trying to look at, into that a little bit. And, and what the woman told me on the line is you need to go through your doctor first. So that's what you should do. Don't um, try and come up with recipes that you see on TikTok, you know, coming up with any sort of a baby formula that, you, you know, you can find on YouTube. Probably not a good idea. Doctors say don't cut it. A lot of parents are saying that's great advice, but I don't have any formula. There's Facebook groups that have started up. There's people who are trying to buy it that way. And one more thing, you guys, you know, if, if let's say you find a supply of baby formula that is your brand that somebody in your area might have, they might live, you know, two towns away. It's a 20-minute, half-hour drive to get there. Then you're paying, how much gas are you paying for that? You know, because the price of everything else is going up. I mean, this is just one more thing compounding a lot of American families and saying we are really hurting right now and you got to do something about it. So they say they're stepping up production soon, hopefully at that Michigan plant, if everything is cleared out and that bacteria is gone. But again, call your doctor because they can work on a case-by-case basis. Sherry, thanks for sorting it all out for us this morning. ABC News correspondent Sherry Preston. That's Greg Hersholt in Manda Factor. And that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows such as Northwest News This Week, Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz, and Lifebeat with Marina Rockinger. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Podulip. Thank you for listening and have a good week.